Welcome to the Arate Podcast, the podcast created to help senior executives and the organizations they lead live up to their full potential. Join us for cutting-edge interviews with leading senior executive and board members across all industry sectors and for practical tips to accelerate your executive career. And now, here's your host, Richard Triggs. Okay, Doug, welcome to the podcast. It's great to have you along. I think you were saying to me that uh, you're, you're about to have a big storm. I am, yes. There's a, a ribbon of red and black coming across from Rath Downey at the moment. So All right. Hopefully it puts some water down on the ground. <laughs> well, let's hope the podcast doesn't get interrupted by bolts of lightning. We'll, we'll see yeah, how right. we go. Anyway, why don't we just start off, Doug, just tell us a little bit about you know what you're doing professionally. So currently at the moment, I have been, I guess you could take, say it's an opportunity or a poison chalice or however you'd like to put it. But my father started a business about 18 years ago, hired a person, bought a laser cutter. And today there's about 120 staff with probably should be about 150 and and we turn over a good size of money. So it's become a quite a sophisticated business. Excellent. And so I've come, yeah, sorry, I've come in as a, initially as the accountant and then as a director and now basically taking on a pseudo CEO slash managing director role. Right. And the business is called GCI Group. Their business called GCI Group. We have a spin-off company called GCI Trade Tech. Okay. And just describe each of those two businesses in a bit more detail in terms of the kind of work that you're doing and, and the applications, et cetera. So I've never really worked in the business on a day-to-day basis, so you'll just have to ex- uh, excuse some of my terminology. But effectively, GCI is a service business. Mm-hmm. If you want something done, a steel box built or a trailer uh, half built or whatever, you come along to GCI and they will help you do the drawings and spec it up and then can take it all through from the engineering side of it right through cutting, folding, welding, engineering, and powder coating, depending on what it is. GCI Traytech, which is only effectively two years old, does the trays and canopies mainly for American vehicles like Dodge Rams and like that, and does some of the local sort of trucks as well, but that's relatively new. Okay, right. And so how much of the work would be bespoke sort of one-off pieces versus, you know, punching out you know, multiple or even you know hundreds of things at a time? It really varies. I mean, we'll have contracts for, say, companies in the gas fields where mm-hmm. they are, you know, a lot of them's part of a consortium with a bigger contract. So, you know, it will be, you know, again, sorry for the wording, but, you know, a big box that goes out in the, in the paddocks mm-hmm. and I'll have two years worth of those to, to build. Okay, right. And, and so all of your people are working out of one facility? Yes, so it's over the years that sort of grown and, you know, at the time there was taking different factories, but it's, uh, you know, it's far more efficient if you can get everybody under the same roof. And so therefore we are under the same roof at the moment, but, you know, it's getting to the point where we have to start thinking about what we're going to do in the future. Right. And uh, from a sort of a sales point of view, is it predominantly people are coming to you and saying, Doug, can, or you're know, saying to your team, yeah. you know, can, can, you, uh, can you guys build this? Or have you got people out, you know, uh, shaking hands and kissing babies and proactively selling that way? Yeah. So effectively, the business is growing organically. Over the period of time, if you look back in the 18, 
years. There was one major customer that fed a lot of business up until about four years ago when they were sold. And then Mm -hmm. the people bought the business, had their own facilities. And so in the sales area, they they have a sales department, but really it's just dealing with people coming in the door or calling up. There is a BDM and he goes out on the road. But it's really just sort of relationship building and that, so there's a huge scope for new, new industries because it Mm -hmm. mainly deals in the mining and the transport industry at the moment. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So there's lots of other things like, you know, agriculture and technology and stuff like that. So, yeah, so they've never really had to market. And I mean, I think the uh, the budget last year for marketing was $35,000. So, okay. (laughs) <laughs> right. And so these clients you've got, you said Dodge and Ram and so on. So are you dealing with the parent in the US or is that a, a local Australian relationship? So the, there's a big difference between GCI and GCI Traytech. So GCI Traytech, we're dealing with an end user. So, right. you know, you go along and you buy your vehicle, your tray, tray back or whatever they're called, and you bring up GCI Traytech and I want a tray and canopy. I'm going camping and this is what I want. You know, what can I do? So you're dealing with the end user at GCI mm-hmm. itself, you're dealing with businesses. So it's business to business. So very, very rare that you'd be dealing with an individual. Okay, great. Fantastic. Well, we'll come back and talk a little bit more about GCI and GCI trade tech in a minute, but uh, let's uh, step back and keen to hear a bit about your background. So uh, tell us a, a little bit about where you were born and mum and dad and where you grew up. <laughs> so my parents come off the land, sheep and cattle stations through their families and in central Queensland. My mum's family was a lot more, I guess, established than my dad's family. They were kind of new to the, the, the farming world. And then I was born outside, well, I was born in Richmond, Queensland, and we lived in a sheep and cattle station between Aramac and Huonden mm-hmm. until I was nine years old. So that's back in the 60s. And I did my first three years of school of the air. And I had two younger brothers, one 11 months younger and one three years younger. So I never really saw another child until we moved down to Nambour for a year. So my first year at school was grade four. So I'd be a great test or uh, to see if everybody's right about the formative years in pre-prep and all those sort of things, which I never did. <laughs> and uh, so what, what took your parents off the land then? So dad was basically working for his father. He had two brothers. And I think that they just felt that there was a lot more opportunity to be, you know, had down here. Right. Yeah. So they moved down here and, and, and effectively dad was really a laborer and, you know, always small businesses and stuff like that. Okay. And so when you were at school, what did you want to be when you grew up? I actually thought I'd like to uh, join the air force, but that didn't happen. But when I left school, I became an apprentice chef. Okay. And. I worked as a chef for four years and that was pretty good. Uh, it got me up to, I worked in downtown Brisbane, a couple of hotels in Brisbane. And then mm-hmm. I worked on Lizard Island for two years, which is north of beautiful uh, Ames. Yep. And then I came back to the Gold Coast. Mum and dad had moved to the Gold Coast. So I was probably my 21, 22, I think by then. And uh, we bought a cafe slash fish and chip shop in uh, Labrador. And mm-hmm. I worked for four years. And the, the day we sold it was the day I had my car packed and I left. And so I was out of here because I was only 24, 25. Right. Uh, and I traveled up the Queensland coast to had a mate who had a yacht. So I caught up with him a couple of times. And then I got a job on Great Keppel Island and the um, get wrecked on Keppel was all of the rage. I was 26 years old and I really had a great time. And then I went down to the snow, did a season down the snow as a bar manager down there because 
You know, I, I recognised at an early time that the barman had a lot more fun in those places than the ships. <laughs> I remember because when I was at uni, I often would work as a barman and I'd look at the chefs, you know, pouring yeah. with sweat in these hot yeah. kitchens and, you know, begging me to bring them, you know, a, an ice cold drink. And I, I, so I definitely agree with what you're saying. And yeah. so what, what eventually dissuaded you from, you know, that career? Well, you know, I think you have to recognize that you don't have a drive for something. And, you know, I, I guess I was a bit of a late starter with recognizing that hard work equals reward. And, you know, it was more about you know, doing what young blokes do and just have fun and motorbikes and girls and all the rest of it. So, but I, I decided to then do a world trip, you know, working in the, on the resorts and that you meet a lot of people from around the world. Mm -hmm. And so I did, I went over to Africa and England and Ireland, and I eventually ended up in Canada and Vancouver. And I landed there in winter and a couple of people said to me, oh, geez, you've got to be here for summer. It's fantastic. So they got me a job. I was scraping the bottom of boats at Granville Island, just off Vancouver, staying in Kitsilano. If anyone knows Vancouver, they'll know they're pretty nice areas. And I was in a, a nightclub one night, in a nightclub called Love Affair. Right. And I think I was the only person, um, well, there probably weren't too many straight people there. And uh, I think I was the only person there that was not wearing black. And I had long sort of curly blonde hair and stuff like that. And uh, and I met my future wife there that night. Right. So, uh -huh. In six months' time, we were married, and I'd moved to Victoria and Vancouver Island. Right. So, so, so you, she she connected with you across a, a smoky, dark nightclub, and thought, "Oh, this guy's a bit of all right." Well, it's funny you should say that because you know in Australia, it's generally, well, my experience is generally, you know, the guy that has to ask the girl. But in Canada, you know, uh, you know, she's the first girl that actually walked across the dance floor and asked me to a dance, and at the end of the night, gave me a business card and said, "Here, give me a call." Wow. So, <laughs> there I this is great. This country, I love it. So, <laughs> and so, how long did you stay in Canada for then? About three years. So we got a little apartment, and she was she was really because I was I was I couldn't cook or anything like that because of the visa restrictions. Right. Uh, so I then I was actually working in a recruitment agency. Then I was a manager of a pet store, which is pet stores over there at the time. Not right. not so much what it was here, but at the time they're very high end retail and stuff like that. Right. And, is it so there's a, there's a future career for me then. If I give up being a recruiter, I might be able to go and work in the, the pet industry. Yeah. Well, the <laughs> job came across the desk one day. I went, oh, this has got to be better than what I'm doing today. So <laughs> wait for the job. And, and that, that lasted a little while. And what? then we decided to come back for, to Australia. I think I was probably 28, 29 then, something like that. And it just felt that as a bloke that I had more opportunities with the backing of my family. Mm -hmm. They get a business and mm -hmm. so, right. So we took my wife and went traveling, went through Fiji and New Zealand, and you know, like she she'd never seen things like bananas or passion fruit or okay. Uh, it's a bit different today. They've got all that stuff there, but you know, it was so it was a real a real thing for her, you know, to you know stay in a backpackers in some Fijian island that you know you can walk around. It was costing fourteen dollars a night with three meals and stuff like that. So it was quite the experience. Yeah, fantastic. Yeah, and we met a couple of people when we were when we were there, and I was studying at uh, doing financial planning and and stuff like that, and and so I thought, oh, you know what, I'm gonna because at the time it was free, you know, university and and yeah, very low price in Australia. Mm. So when we came back, I applied for I couldn't get into uni as a mature age then because unemployment I think was about twelve percent, mm -hmm. and so went to college, which was probably the best thing I ever did. So I did a associate diploma for two years, which 
teaches you a lot more, you know, in the accounting world, teaches a lot more actual bookkeeping, you know, you know, gives you a lot more understanding of management accounting and stuff like that. And then did the degree, finished the degree after that and mm-hmm. then got a job as a, as a junior accountant, I suppose. Mm-hmm. I imagine, you know, and certainly the TV shows try and present being a chef as this incredibly gram- glamorous, yeah. you know, very, very creative job. And, you know, and, and certainly for that, that level of chef, it, it, it can be that, but there is a degree of, you know, creativity and, and, and so unusual to have had a role or sort of a career like that and then go into the accounting area. Did you, were there lessons you'd learned that you brought into your sort of accounting practice or was it a completely foreign experience for you? You know, I, I thought about that quite a few times over the years, especially with my own accounting practice, even now with GCI. You know, when you're a waiter, and I did waitering for a fair while, not food waitering, but wine waitering and stuff, steps you up a great Keppel Island, stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, you're always scanning the table. You're always scanning the people. You know, a good waiter or waitress will know exactly what's happening at your table, mm-hmm. know what you want, you know, and be there. So, and it's all about presentation and service. So mm-hmm. the hospitality industry is really, you know, and, and like we went to a dinner on, you know, this Saturday and the food was fantastic. The service was probably the worst I've ever seen okay. and really makes a difference to the thing. So I really think that, you know, in my accounting practice, you know, I was pretty full on. I had an accounting practice for, on my own for 15 years, with mm-hmm. a couple of partners in and out. And a lot of that was around what I'd been conditioned because, you know, you've seen some of these cooking shows and wagering and stuff like that. There's, there's not a lot of screwing around, you know, like it's a lot of fun outside mm. of work, but mm. when you're at work, it's, it's a lot of pressure. And I think that sometimes to the detriment, you know, because if I, I, an accountant or one of my staff didn't get back to a client pretty quickly, I, it really, you know, I, I was not happy, you know, so, and I think I brought that through. Right. And, um, and so uh, you had your own practice, did you say, for 15 years? Yep, yep, And yep. Is, is that still a going concern or you've left that completely? No, so I sold that and in uh, fact, it's the two years, the final contract, you know, last day, last bit of money should be coming in in the next week or so, yay. Right. <laughs> and and uh, no, I sold it to a, a an accounting practice that had 50 staff here on the Gold Coast. So they, okay. they just moved into a new building they needed a few little desks and stuff like that but i mean at the time the main reason i was selling it was because of the difficulty to get accountants you know they they moved it you know probably 20 years ago 15 years ago that there was a there was a shortage of accountants coming through and it's absolutely true so it's that's what's really happened like prop you know like especially tax accounts and stuff like that yeah so, i mean we, we don't yeah, recruit so, yeah the we pack- don't we don't recruit in the accounting space, but I have a lot of professional connections with CEOs and managing partners of even the big four, you know, accounting firms. And at the moment, just try to retain people, let alone hire people, is almost impossible. Yeah, it is very different, you know. And you know, you just always have to keep in the back of your mind that they can walk out in the morning and walk into another job with better pay at any given time. <laughs> yeah. And so, how did your how did your parents get involved with GCI? Did they start that from scratch, or was it a going yep. concern when your dad bought it? So, I think what happened at the time was my brother was working for a person here on the Gold Coast that had some sort of welding business or something. And I, I think Dad must have got talking to him, and you know the guy must have said, "Listen, there's an opportunity in sheet metal cutting." Mm-hmm. And so Dad had, you know, he was seventy years old, and Dad, you know, had been looking around for. 
you know, a few years for whatever reason he felt that he needed to <laughs> get a business at that age. And, and so they basically bought a sheet metal, a secondhand laser cutter or whatever it was, and they hired a little guy, a guy to do it. And that guy now runs GCI. So he's been there for 18 years and he was the first employee. So dad never actually worked in the place ever, right. but he visited two or three times a week right up until COVID. Okay. And then, then, then toppled with that and his body just started breaking down. So Right. And so what was it particularly about laser cutting? Or did, was it just he was entrepreneurial and thought, you know, here's a good business model that's going to make money or it sounds a bit random? Yeah, I, well, it's funny, you know, I've never really asked him why he did it. I would suggest that it was just an opportunity. He probably liked the idea that you had a machine and then you just did products and he put some, you know, he put money into the product and, and I think that came from my mother's estate or my mother's parents' estate, father's yeah. estate. Yeah. So, yeah, and I think it was just an opportunity, whether it was that he felt that he needed to prove to his father that he was a good business person or, he, you know, he's one of these kind of guys that, He's a bit of a nagger, you know, you know, so he's like constantly wanting that new machine and, you know, don't worry about, you know, whether it makes a profit or anything, just, just let's get it. You know, it's that whole build it and they will come right. <laughs> scenario. So so we, it's worked out well, right? Well, it's worked out extremely well and, you know, naivety or whatever, you know, sometimes, you know, if you sat down and did a bit proper business plan and did all these different things and then it, you probably wouldn't have done it. And right. I, I think a lot of businesses start like that, you know. And so you're you're saying your brother's involved? He was never involved in GCI. He was working with this other guy that went into partnership, but they very early bought that partner out very early, so probably in the first year. So right, and then they moved out of the factory and got their own little place, and then they've changed factories a number of times over the years. Okay, right. So neither of your brothers are still involved with this business. No, not no, no. Okay. I, I, they're only from a director point of view. So it's been quite deliberate that none of the family work in the business, none of the grandchildren or anything like that. Right. Okay. So recently, obviously with the sale of your accounting practice, you've had the opportunity to you know, have a greater involvement in the business. And so as a, as a result of that, when you're looking out to the future, you know, what are some of the things that you're excited about? I know, for example, you've brought in, you know, somebody who I know very well as your advisory chair. And so, you know, it, I imagine that there must be some quite exciting things that you're looking forward to. Yeah, I think too that because it's going to be family run business or, you know, certainly from a director upwards and ownership point of view that, you know, there's people to report to. It's just not my father anymore. And he only has had to answer to my mother. So, yeah. So now, you know, it's, it's answering to the other people. And it's also setting it up for the, you know, our kids, you know, because, you know, my kids are 23, my brother's children are in their thirties, but they don't have formal education. So if something happened to me or to my brother, we need that structure in place. And so our first toe in the water was the advisory board instead of going into a full-blown board. So we're just trying to take it step by step. And, and so you mentioned earlier that it was quite intentional that your father's children wouldn't work in the business. And was that more because there was a lack of interest or because, you know, didn't want to have that perception of, you know, the boss's kids are getting the best opportunities or what was the motivation around? I'm not a hundred percent sure. I just think that the general manager and my father felt that it was best for the business, not right. to have that. And, 
stop any jealousies or stop any, you know, with, within the family as well, you know, yep. and, and within the business. And, you know, you, you always treat the, the, you know, even if it's a junior employee, if it's the grandson, well, they're going to be treated a little bit different naturally. So as a, as a result, then your children and your brother's children won't work in the business either. I, I think we will stick to that rule. Right. Yeah. Yeah, look, I, I I know other family-run businesses, and I mean, if it's not managed well, it can lead to you know, families essentially breaking up. And uh, yeah, so I, I understand. And so, if you were to describe, you, you've said the business has been very successful, and you you have a lot of people who are coming to you through obviously referral and word of mouth, etc. What is it about the culture of the business that uh, has really driven this success? It's quite difficult for me to put my finger on that. I think that the general manager works very hard. You know, I'm sure that he's, you know, learned a lot over the 18 years of how to manage and keep staff and learn to have staff that aren't, if they're not fitting in, you know, move them on. So I think there's a real genuine need or want to do professional work, to do good work and to provide a good product. Mm -hmm. and, and then looking out towards the future... Do you see a time where perhaps, you know, you're operating in multiple locations or you mentioned earlier that there's a whole range of industries that currently are untapped? Yeah, what, what, what are some of the growth plans? So I see sort of two things. It, with the, I would like to keep everything under the one roof, but only because, you know, I just see the efficiencies in, in that. But, you know, if you've ever tried to go rent a factory or buy land anywhere near Yatla, you understand that that might, you know, if you need a 15,000 square meter factory, it's like, well, you know, this just mightn't be possible. Right. So that issue, we would like to really grow the idea of a having our own product. So with GCI Traytech at the moment, we're doing a new uh, model where we work in partnership with company that will fit and install the product. Mm -hmm. And so the partnership where Traytech does the sale, the design, and GCI does a flat pack, and then mm -hmm. it's shipped off to the this other company who then takes over the customer and then fits it out, puts their own products attached to it. Mm -hmm. So we figure that that possibly could be done around Australia, even overseas. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, we want to use that as a bit of a, a research and development company, product development company, and grow that side of it. So we have a bit more control over our customers. Mm-hmm. Okay. And um, and then what about some of these other industries? You, where do you see the the, the low-hanging fruit for the business? So we're doing a strategic planning session coming up and we're going to be discussing a lot of those sort of things in that. So for me personally, you know, we've looked at the agricultural industry. Most people, as soon as you mentioned this, they go, what about military? Okay. And, you know, that's that's a lot easier said than done. And, you know, it's not always a guarantee. There's lots of hoops and there's big contractors out there that control it. And, you know, there's a mixture of the government, Australian government saying this amount of, these amount of products need to be done in Australia. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, it's not, not always that easy. And, and the work has to be absolutely spot on and mm -hmm. there's lots of uh, different, I guess, regulations and stuff like that. Yeah. So, and and all, all of the security clearances and everything that's required. We have yeah. some quite... We have some clients in that space as well. And uh, yeah, so I think it's definitely not for the faint-hearted. Yeah. And, you know, I think it depends if you could probably partner up with a few other people within the industry. Mm -hmm. I think that would be probably good. And uh, yeah. So as for other industries, you know, that, you know, we just need to find them. 
Right. And what about in terms of your own career? Obviously, at the moment, GCI is taking your attention, but is there a, a you know a plan to return to your accounting or do you have other things that you're looking forward to personally? No, well, I just figure that certainly not an accounting practice. There's absolutely no way I'd go back to that. Right. Um, you know, I love the work and everything like that, but, you know, it's full on. Right. And, and the way I do things is pretty full on. So uh, in for a penny, in for a pound sort of thing. But, you know, I'm in my 60s now, so, you know, I, you know, I want to enjoy <laughs> the next 20 years or so. Yeah. Any, any grand aspirations to potentially become a board director or go down that route or not, not really of interest? To you? Uh, not at the moment. I've certainly done the AICD course. I le- I'm trying to learn as much as I can. I go to the conference down in Melbourne or Sydney. I've uh, done the advisory board course. So, you know, I deal with a couple of different companies that are information providers and that. So I've, I've tried to learn as much as I can mm-hmm. about doing it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but my, you know, my, my main goal is to get GCI to a, a really professional corporate entity. Fantastic. I've just literally done the AICD course myself. Yeah. I did the week-long residential one. Yeah. And I said yeah. to myself after it's right, Richard, you're going to be really disciplined and get that assessment done within <laughs> two weeks. Yeah. I, think, I think it's been over two months now and I haven't done it. Yeah. And, oh my goodness. So I need yeah. to pull my finger out. And, and Doug, what about when you're not working? You know, what are the kind of things that, uh, I mean, obviously you're a family guy. Uh, what are the things you do to keep your uh, petrol tank? We have Arabian horses. And okay. up till recently, we, you were doing endurance horse riding. So we did that for about 10 years. Right. And uh, endurance horse riding, if you don't know it, it's, it's generally Arabian horses. They're a lot more of that sort of lighter, stronger, thinner sort of skinned horses, but other breeds do do it. And you start off at a sort of a an entry level 20 kilometre ride and it goes up to 160 kilometre ride. So, right. And you, yeah. you're, you're riding yourself? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I picked up, you know, my mum's always had horses, even right. now she still has horses. That's okay. But my wife comes from Calgary and right. That, in uh, Alberta, so she's all, she grew up with horses. So, you know, I, was, I said one day to Melita, I said, you know, I'd like to get another investment. We need to ha- get another house on the water, you know. So she goes, okay, when well, she went out and she found a 15-acre property out at Clagrabar. So that's where we went. And then we bought horses and it's up against the uh, some, some bushland. Right. And, and so we do a lot of trail riding. But the insurance riding, we did that, you know, through our 50s and, yeah, that was pretty full on. Right. So basically, like you said, that your father had to report to his wife. You, yeah. have, you have to do the same thing, huh? <laughs> In certain parts, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> I, did, I, I literally, literally recorded another podcast this morning and the guy uh, who's uh, actually director of an engineering firm is about to go and run 270-kilometre race from the coast yeah. to the tip of the top of Mount Kosciuszko. And I was like, wow. But I, I imagine riding a horse for 160 kilometres. That must yeah. be exhausting. Well, I never did the 160. My wife did a couple. There's, it is full on, you know, as you've got 24 hours to finish the ride in. And it's all about management of the horse. It's, it is, there is winners, but you have to pass various vet checks and the horse has to be healthy the whole way. And right. so a lot of it's about management of your horse. But yep. the 80 kilometer rides, you know, you can get a bit of speed up. And, you know, I think, and we were quite competitive. I think, you know, a really slow 80 kilometers would probably be about, from memory, about seven, eight, nine hours. You know? Right. Yeah. And the fastest we did it in was about four and a half hours. Wow. Eight. And it was, you know, you're talking up down hills through farmlands on little tracks. Okay. And 
it was we were a lot fitter then. Now it was only a few years ago, but you know, it was it was awesome fun. Oh, that's excellent. I have uh, been recently watching this TV series called Eighteen Eighty Three about the guys originally crossing over the America to establish their farms and riding their horses through, you know, the the Native American Indians and the cattle rustlers. It's like a ten hour cowboy and Indian movie. And I yeah. thought, oh, you know, I've never I'd love to learn how to ride a horse. Yeah. Oh, that's awesome. And what about travel? Have you got any travel plans coming up? Yes, we've got tickets booked to, we fly into Naples on the 3rd of March. Okay. And we fly out of London on the, I think the 3rd of May. And so we're going to do the, the south of Italy. Right. And then work our way up through the French Riviera up to Bordeaux and then over to Edinburgh, across the top of Scotland. Right. Back down to London, do a couple of weeks in London and then home. Yeah. But well, that sounds that's our like next trip. That sounds awesome. All right. Well, look, Doug, I really appreciate your time today. Wish you the greatest of success with your business and your upcoming holiday and have a fantastic afternoon. Thank you very much, mate. Okay. Thank you for joining us on the Arate podcast with Richard Triggs. If you'd like a free copy of Richard Triggs' book, Uncover the Hidden Job Market, How to Find and Win Your Next Senior Executive Role, please visit uncovertheHiddenJobMarket.com to register your details. The Arate podcast is brought to you by the Experts On Air podcast network.